On the third day, a wedding took place at Canaan in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jugs, the kind used by Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. He called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Canaan in Galilee. He thus received his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Vicki. So, let's recap our journey so far this Lenten season. Maybe you've been with us, maybe you're just coming in at this point. We began the Lenten season by going with Jesus into the waters of the Jordan and experiencing Jesus' baptism. Jesus, you recall, as he was baptized in the Jordan, came up out of the water and was heralded as the beloved son of his father in whom his father was well pleased. And at that same time, he was also filled with the Holy Spirit and became the conduit of the things of heaven now being unleashed here on earth. And the significance of Jesus' baptism for us is that all who are in Christ, the things that are said of Jesus are said of all who are in Christ. So in many ways, the affirmation of Jesus' identity as a beloved son of the Father in whom his Father is well pleased, as one filled with the Holy Spirit, is a confirmation of our true identity in Christ. And in the same way, all the things that are available to Christ for those who are in Christ are available to us. And so the authority and power of the kingdom, the empowerment that Jesus receives in the Jordan is our authorization for the authority and power that our Father seeks to unleash in us. But our Lenten journey moved from water into the desert as Jesus, and we followed him, was led into the desert to test our resistance to the authority and power of the kingdom that our Father seeks to unleash in us. Will we rely and trust and live out of our true identity as declared to us by God when we face our greatest temptations? Or will we, when our appetites get the best of us, when approval dangles before us, when ambition beckons for us to take control, will we try still to prove ourselves and to validate our worth? The answer as I hope we've learned for those three weeks we spent in the wilderness, the answer is for every test, any test that's put before us, any trial that we come across, the only way that we can be victorious is by paying attention and following the victory of Christ in the Word and by the Spirit. We need to look constantly, vigilantly to Jesus as our guide and our protector before every trial that comes before us that would seek to have us wandering in the wilderness and being apart from our Father and outside his kingdom. So we have learned to keep our eyes and to stay in step with Jesus. And as we follow Jesus out of the wilderness of our lives, we end up at a wedding. 
A wedding? We move from Matthew's gospel over these last few weeks to John's, and isn't it odd? I don't know if it, when's the last time you read John, but isn't it odd that the very first thing that John singles out about Jesus' public ministry is an event like this? This is what John highlights as the very first thing that Jesus does. I mean, of all the miracles that we know that Jesus will do in his lifetime, healing the sick and the lame, the blind, the paralyzed, raising the dead, John presents the ministry of Jesus by showing his miracle of turning water into an alcoholic beverage. And what a more appropriate scripture on St. Patrick's Day, huh? <laughs> and I didn't plan that at all, but the Lord knew. <laughs> turning water into wine. This is Jesus' first public act in ministry. But maybe there's more going on here. Maybe there's more going on here than meets the eye. I don't know how familiar you are with the Gospel of John, but if you ever were to look at John side by side with the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John is different. John is different. John is actually written several decades after Matthew, Mark, and Luke write their Gospels. John, who was one of the disciples, the beloved disciple, is writing after some time has gone by. He's writing with some perspective. Have you ever done that? Experienced life and waited till you had a little perspective? John waits until he has a little perspective to write. And the interesting thing is where Matthew, Mark, and Luke are written for non-believers, for people to come to faith in Christ, John tells us quite plainly at the very end of his gospel, chapter 20, his purpose in writing. John's purpose in writing is for those who already believe in Christ, that they would still continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. John's gospel is unique in that he is writing primarily for those who've already come to faith in Christ. And this makes sense because in John, in waiting to write his gospel, several decades later, there are many who have come to faith who believe in Jesus. And so John is writing primarily for the believer, that they would still continue to believe in Christ. And as a result of John writing later, John also writes differently. One of the things that's fascinating about the Gospel of John is when you compare it again to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there are things that we would say are kind of big that John doesn't write about, that John was there for, but he doesn't include in his Gospel, but Luke, Matthew, and Mark do. And then there are other things that we don't even find in Luke, Matthew, and Mark that John gives us. John is in many ways writing a sermon through his Gospel. He is structuring it, what he includes, where he includes it, in a way for us to see something a way for us to see something that we wouldn't normally see. John tells us the fact that he has other things he could tell us because at the end of the gospel, he also says, I love this, you know, there's tons more stuff I could write down, but I could fill up pages. But I've given you what I've given you, those who believe in Christ, to still believe in Jesus. So again, you would hold on to the faith that's been given to you. So I say all of this because this story, especially this is the start of Jesus' ministry. John is purposeful. He wants us to see something. It's funny, in John, we don't talk miracles. John's gospel talks about signs, and signs point us to something. John wanted the people he was writing to then and wants us now to see something, to see a sign that points us to something that we wouldn't otherwise see. What does John want us to see? Well, this story, as, as all the stories that John gives us, are filled with many different things that we can see. And let me just say, just in case it's not obvious, that for John 2 today, the most obvious but needs to be said is that John is, is with all the signs saying this Jesus is truly, he was truly the Messiah. He is the one we've been waiting for. He's the one that was prophesied and pointed to. So let's take that as a given. 
And then there are countless other things we can see, but we're all, we only have time this morning. There's only two I want us to focus on, two things I want us to see that John wants us to see through this story. And the first is something that we're supposed to see in terms of what happens to get us into the story. So Jesus and his disciples go to a wedding. We don't know who got married, but we can assume that it must have been someone that was family or close to Jesus for them to have been invited. And they go. All we know is that they're there, Jesus, his disciples, whom he's just called, and his mother Mary. And you can picture it. I mean, a wedding is awesome. There's nothing better than a wedding, right? They're celebrating. They're enjoying themselves. They're honoring the newly married couple. When all of a sudden it happens, major party foul. The wine runs out. What a dreadful embarrassment. What an example of poor hospitality. Doesn't make, for those of you who are hosts or hostess, doesn't it make you cringe? I mean, whoever, I mean, I think about a wedding too. Whoever heard of the bar closing before the celebration even got started? And you can imagine the, the awkwardness, the tension. You can imagine because people are people that some people probably started to head for the door. Oh, they're out of wine. It's not going to get much better. If they run out of stuff in the beginning, you know, it doesn't look better. This party is over, gone. And in one sense, there's a, a visceral reaction we should have to this. It should make us a little bit awkward. And for the, again, those of us, if we ever threw a party, let alone a wedding, and we ran out of wine, if we ran out of something, gosh, that would be like horrific for us. But even in what takes place, John wants us to see something deeper. I love that when John relays what happens, he, he he's uses a very intentional word in my mind. He says, when the wine ran out. Not if the wine runs out. When the wine ran out. Mary points it out, John tells us. And Mary, in many ways, is pointing out a truth about our lives, a truth that at some point we all experience. There comes a day when the wine runs out. When we were in the wilderness, we talked a lot about this, but it bears repeating. Too often we live with the illusion of our own self-sufficiency. We try to live our lives out of our own strength, out of our own will, out of our own resources. And if that's us, there comes a time, it comes for each one of us, it may come multiple times for some of us, because some of us, if you're like me, are pretty thick-headed. When that illusion is shattered... The illusion of our self-sufficiency is shattered on the day when the wine runs out. We come to those moments in the midst of our marriages or our families where we're, we're trying so hard, we're trying to hold things together. It's our strength, our energy, our effort. We're doing everything we can. But there comes a moment with our marriages and with our families where loving each other seems to be a lot more work than it is play. There comes a point where the arguments and the fighting seriously outweigh the peace and the joy. And that's because the wine's run out. We work. So much of our time is spent in our careers, and even, whether we're even if we're retired, we, we reach this place where we, we have to occupy our time, and we work, and we, we want things that we can do, and, and, and just there, suddenly there comes a point when the, it's a, what's called the law of diminishing returns, where the amount that we're putting in, the amount that we're putting in of ourselves, the energy we're putting in, we're not getting the same payback, and we start, it starts very slowly, we start to feel empty inside, we start to feel, we don't want to say bored with what we're doing. We start to feel defeated. We start to feel like we don't have any value, that we don't have anything to produce. 
And in our jobs and in our work, the things that we occupy our time, suddenly we, this, this space where we spend most of our time, we find ourselves feeling defeated rather than engaged, dead rather than alive. It gets so bad when you, you get to that place where you actually struggle to get up and go. You want to stay in bed or sit in a chair. It's that space where all of a sudden you're just sitting there doing nothing and hours go by and you go, what the heck happened? Because you just are burning out because the wine has run out. Some of us want to do, are such givers, we're do-gooders. We want to do good. We want to help other people. We want to be there for them. And we, and we do and we do and we help and we, we try to serve. And, and then all of a sudden, in the midst of that, that doing good, we suddenly start to feel tired. Like we're always doing and we're not receiving and we actually experience what we call compassion fatigue because the wine has run out. And when the wine runs out, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's that realization in our lives that we can't make it on our own. When the wine runs out, it's that moment when we realize that we can't live by our own strength, by our own will and our own resources. And when the wine runs out, we're primed for what happens here when Jesus comes, when we were ready for the gospel. We are ready to hear that we need to be saved. We are ready to receive the freedom to not have to be in charge, to not have to be the makers of our own wine. We are ready to hear that we are free through forgiveness. We are free from guilt and shame, which often drives us in so much of trying to do things by our own strength. We are free from the failures and mistakes that we're always trying to fix. Running out of wine is the opening of the door to Jesus. It's how we come to faith in Christ. And I would imagine all of us would say amen. That's good. Thank you. I keep forgetting we're not Baptists. We're Lutherans. Okay. <laughs> but remember, John writes his gospel not primarily for the non-Christian. He writes it for those who already trust Christ with their lives. And I think that's relevant here because I think that on the one hand, while we can talk about the wine running out is what brings us to faith in Christ, more and more as a pastor, what strikes me, which maybe John wants us to see, is that running out of wine also happens to those who are Christians too. How's that possible? How is, it, how is that possible? How is it possible for a Christian to have the wine run out it's possible because there are many, as I said, as a pastor, not just in our community, but in the wider church, who even though they would call themselves Christians, they call themselves Christians, and yet they're still trying to live the Christian life out of their own strength and resources. I've talked about this a lot before, and I'm going to come back to it again because it's so significant, it's so central of a thing that we're dealing with in the church, is that we need to really wrestle with how we understand our salvation, how we understand what we have received in Christ. Because if you believe that what Jesus gives you is some sort of static, fixed title, you're a Christian now. And you're trying to be a Christian. If you think that grace, we talk about grace, we, we celebrate it. If you think grace is a gift that's more like a possession, like a piece of paperwork, that Jesus comes and gives you grace, that give, he gives you a new lease on life, and then you're spending your life trying to exercise that new lease on life. If you look at, at, at being a Christian, being saved is again being like an insurance policy, 
then what you end up doing is you embrace Jesus, you take the policy, this static thing, you put it away, and then you spend the rest of your time and energy trying to figure out this Jesus, this kingdom thing on your own. You're trying to follow Jesus, to do things for Jesus on your own. And, that, what, and, what, and, and in the midst of years that can go by for some of us of just feeling frustrated and empty as the wine runs out, salvation for us is this insurance policy that we can pull out in case of emergency. Well, at least I know as I, if I screw it up or if nothing else happens, I can pull this out and I'm good to go. And there's truth in that. You are good to go in Christ. But that time in between, that time we're living right now is not meant to be dry and empty. The wine is not meant to be run out. But some of you here today, this is still working for you. This trying to be a Christian thing. But others of you know what I'm talking about. Others of you know what I'm talking about. And I'm speaking to you, maybe most specifically right now. You know and maybe you can relate this to others who don't, who don't get what I'm saying you know, it's that, it's that, what's that moment like when you first are, become a Christian, when you first follow Jesus and you just pray, do you remember it? And you, you pray and you, you see just so many answered prayers. You're praying and you are just so excited by the answered prayer. But then all of a sudden, you're not seeing those prayers answered. And so you get on your knees and you pray harder. Man, you're spending hours, you're sweating, and if you could sweat blood like Jesus, you would. And you're praying and you're praying and you're not seeing answered prayer because the wine has run out. You remember when you came to Christ or maybe when you confirmed your faith and you grew up in a Christian home and you read this book, you read this Bible, and you were excited to read it. Man, you were hungry for it. Every time you read it, there was just more and more things you saw and it was almost too much. The insights you had, oh my gosh, how good is God? And man, just the depth of information and knowledge and then all of a sudden, it just, you just weren't as compelled to read that anymore. All of a sudden, days could go by. It got kind of dusty. And the thing is, is that what was happening, if you really admitted it, is yeah, you had a lot of information. Man, you've been through a lot of Bible studies, heard a lot of great sermons. But the thing is, for all the information that you have, not much has changed in your life. Because the wine's run out. Remember when you followed Christ and you would share your faith? Remember when you first just you fell in love with Jesus and you, you told people about this gospel, this good news, and Jesus was your best friend and you would share it and it was awesome when you'd share your faith because in sharing your faith, there'd be all these things that you'd see God doing that you had no idea were going on because you actually told people that you followed Christ. You told people about the gospel and man, the testimonies that would come, the things, the stories you'd come back and share. But then all of a sudden, Things started to cool off. All of a sudden, you started to be more private. All of a sudden, it got a little more hostile. All of a sudden, you know, even though you, you kept trying to find opportunities to share, you kept getting slapped back or it turned into an argument or people were just finally like, what, I'm done with you. And you didn't know what to make of it. You were supposed to share your faith. And you actually go to church now and when the pastor says, are you sharing your faith? Are you telling people about Jesus? You sit there all guilty. And you actually turn to someone and go, you know, I, I, I can't share my faith because I don't actually have any unchristian friends. Because the wine has run out. Some of us, man, when we realize what Jesus gave for us, Jesus came and, and did for us, we wanted so much out of the generosity of grace. 
given what we didn't deserve, what we could never possibly pay back, we want to serve. And so many of us, when we came to faith in Christ, we wanted to serve. And it was different before where we do things to try to prove our worth. We wanted to do it for Jesus. Man, we wanted to serve for the Lord. And we served, and we served, and we looked for any opportunity. If they said they needed somebody, we'd raise our hand because we wanted to do it for the kingdom and for the Lord. But then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, it just seemed a lot harder to do the things that we were doing for the Lord. All of a sudden, we didn't want to admit it at first, but it started to pop out. We started to get bitter in all the things we were doing for the Lord. All of a sudden, we weren't feeling thankful anymore. We were feeling thankless. That nobody was appreciating. Not that it's what it's about. We were conflicted because we're not supposed to care about that. But at the same time, no one's appreciating. We're being taken advantage of. And you're in that place because the wine has run out. That's what happens. I don't know how, how you can follow Christ, but it happens. All of a sudden, just like that, your glass is empty. And for a while, you just keep coming up on Sunday and trying to get a refill, but after a while, that ain't working either. And just like that, the party's over. The party of being a Christian is over. And for some of us, the reason why we're not here is because all of a sudden we just reached this place when the wine ran out where we said, you know what? This isn't that much different than before I knew Jesus. So what am I doing here? And for others of us, we may be on the razor's edge of that right now. Others of us, maybe we've got a while to go. But it's the experience of being able to say, crazy as it sounds, we're saved. We say we're saved, but yet our lives seem empty and dry. It's the experience of praising God on Sunday, but when we step out of this space, we actually, in the darkness of our homes and of our, of our lives, there's no vibrancy, no vitality. Even maybe when we come here and other people are singing, we stand up, we look around, but there's nothing growing. Nothing's fermenting within us. Our world is colorless and tasteless. We don't want to say it out loud. The bouquet of life is absent and we're living less than fully alive. You know how you can recognize this trend? It's actually told to us by John. John, the wine steward, shares this. This is how we, how we make wine apart from Christ. Did you catch this? The way we make wine apart from Christ, the way that we live apart from Jesus, is we bring out our best wine. We give it our all and we bring out our best wine. But our best wine can only go so far. And so you know what we bring out next? The cheap stuff. Whatever we got left in the tank, and I love how he says this, with the, the best wine gets brought out first, and then they bring out the cheap wine when everyone's had too much to drink. We do that too. We bring out our best wine, we give people, show people the best that we have, and, and we're very, we all are impressed. And then all of a sudden, once people have, have, have formed their opinions of us, they think we're solid, we're good, we're good with Jesus, we're great, we are able now to fake it in order to make it. We can bring out the cheap stuff. And people don't know any better. They don't poke and don't ask that deep down really what's happening is the wine is starting to run out. The wine is running out. And what ends up happening from best to cheap to we got nothing. The wine has run out. I suspect each one of us could tell a story about the day when the wine ran out. I, I, I know, I, 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 my sense is high right now that some of us may even be living that reality today. It's funny, and I want to encourage this, this is not a rebuke, but in preaching over the last couple of weeks, um, people have come to me directly, and I've heard through the grapevine, if you will, that, you know, man, I'm really feeling beat up by your sermons. Man, I'm just really feeling beat up. And I hear that. First thing I want to say is, we were in the wilderness. What'd you expect? We're facing the devil, man. Come on. 
But that aside, you got to ask yourself if you're feeling beat up. And I mean this as a serious question. If you're feeling beat up by me, then i got a problem and you need to intervene. But if you're feeling beat up by the word of God, you cannot shy away from that. And you're not the only one being beat up. I don't know if you were here last week, but I was pretty beat up myself. Well, we're not a, a separate in this. We're together. And I call beating, being beat up, that's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. If that's the word of God, if it's not Chris beating you up or someone else, but it's God's word that just you're like, man, yeah, okay, but I don't, man, I'm just feeling beat up. That's the conviction of the Spirit. And it's not to say stop. It's to say, why am I feeling beat up? That's hint number one, that the wine is running if it hasn't already run out. Now, some of us, if we're, we're thinking about this, we may go, how can that be, though? How can someone be a Christian and run out of wine? How can, how can someone find themselves in that place? All the examples you gave. Maybe you're even saying, I'm there, but I don't understand how that can happen. How can I get to that space? If I believe in Jesus, if he saves me in grace and all in faith, how can I be there? This is how it happens. How it happens is when we do things for Jesus without being with Jesus. Paul puts it this way, without being in Christ. Here's the thing, and I, you, if you remember the triangles, I'm not going to put them up because I think you know what they look like. There's no disconnect between our covenant identity, who we are in Christ, who God says we are in Christ, our true identity. There's no disconnect from that and our kingdom responsibility, what we do in Christ. Both are in Christ. Where the wine runs out, if you're a Christian, is you've received your identity, but then you basically push Jesus out of the way and try to do all kinds of things for him without him there. Representation, I've told you, our kingdom responsibility is to represent our Father. We hear representation, and that presumes that our Father's not there. That's the beauty of the gospel, the good news. When we're called to represent our Father, representing our Father doesn't mean that our Father's not with us. It's not like God says, man, I am really tired from this whole creation thing and running the universe for you know, thousands upon millions of years. So I'm going to take a nap. So you guys got this. Our father says, represent me while he's standing over our shoulder. His hand upon us. Many of us celebrate and look forward to Jesus coming back. And man, that's the one thing that is also in indicative of the wine running out. How many Christians are whining, pun intended, man, Jesus got to come back. Jesus has got to come back. I just keep praying, Jesus, Lord, come back. You know, the idea that Jesus is coming back doesn't mean that Jesus isn't here now. I know that's hard for us to get our arms around, but the idea that Jesus is coming back doesn't mean that we can't find or follow Jesus here and now. Jesus, when he ascended to his Father, said, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. I'm going to send you an extension of me so that when you're going, the wine will never run out. Because I'll always be with you. Beloved, if your wine has run out or running out, let me just say it again. Three things to you. Change your orientation. There are so many Christians that think that they have to still save themselves. You, you say you believe in grace. You say you understand that there's nothing you can do, that God has done it all. And yet there are so many of us that are holding on to things that we're like, this is so bad, this is so messed up, that I know that God says he can forgive it, but I got to do something to make up for this. I, I have to fill this in because this is just too big for God. You can't and st need to stop saving yourself because every ounce of that is draining the wine out of your life. 
And then there's, there's others of us who get really, really fired up about Jesus and the gospel and the kingdom. We're so passionate about it. We see all that's happening out in the world and we believe it's our job. We are just, we have to defend the gospel. We got to defend it because it's in jeopardy, man. And let me tell you something. You got to stop worrying about winning. You don't need to win for Jesus. Jesus has already won. Thank you very much. I don't care what you see out there, what we see out there, Jesus wins. And yet for many of us, we're so fixated on, man, we can't let this stand. We got to win for Jesus. The wine is running out of our lives because we're making our own wine, fighting a good fight. Smacking people upside the head, throwing the Bible at them. Jesus isn't asking you to do it. And then there are those of us who in the midst of the turmoil we see, people not coming to church, people who've left grace, people who are falling away from it, and we believe that we have to be the life of the party. We gotta get them back. We gotta be the ones to help them to, to see what's going on. It's the opposite of fighting for the kingdom. It's more of we just gotta, I'm sorry, prostitute ourselves for the kingdom. We gotta, and, and Jesus doesn't ask you to be the life of the party. You're not the life of the party. I'm not the life of the party. Jesus is the life of the party. We're guests. We're guests. Beloved, we need Jesus not only to tell us, show us who we are, the point I'm making is we need Jesus to lead us, to guide us in terms of what we are to do for the kingdom. We surrender at the beginning to Christ, we surrender every step of the way, and we'll surrender at the end. There's no disconnect. And if there's no disconnect, the wine doesn't run out. But don't just take my word for it. I told you the first thing was what leads into this story. The second thing we're looking at is what happens as a result of the wine running out. And I think it's worth noting you ought to step back and see how everyone reacts to the wine running out. First, notice that some people are clueless. They're not even aware of what's going on. There are other people, like the disciples, who are stuck. What do we do? It's so awkward. And then you have people who probably, as I said, moved on, snuck out. Party's over, going somewhere else. But one person in John's story knows what to do. One person, Mary. Mary alone knows what to do. The disciples, they're three days out of being called by Jesus. They don't know anything. I mean, they're like. But Mary knows what to do. And a little bit of props for, for the women in the room. Contrary to what we often think, Jesus called disciples before the 12, and Mary was the first disciple. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was the first disciple. She was following Jesus from the moment she was blessed to bring him into this world. And you see an example of her discipleship right here. When all of a sudden everybody else is responding differently to this tragedy, this major party foul, Mary knows where to go. And she goes to Jesus. She teaches the original disciples and she teaches us. The initial exchange between a mother and her son is interesting the wine's run out, she tells Jesus, and Jesus says, as you know, woman, why do you involve me? Now, this isn't a rebuke. This is this, uh, just another way of what Jesus says in other places. When people come and ask him, he says, what do you want? What are you looking for? Jesus is always questioning us to see God at work, in God at work his father at work in bringing him to us. Does that make sense? There's nothing delights God more than to see how we are allowing him to work through us. So he says to his mother, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. We know it's not a rebuke because Jesus gets up and does something. But that word involved, just again, just to close out, that's another great discipleship word. Part of the problem why many of us have the wine running out in our lives is because we have an uninvolved Jesus in our lives. Forget your day-to-day -day life. 
when things hit the fan, how many of us go to all these other places rather than the first place we're going is running to Jesus and involving Jesus in what's going on in our lives? How many of us, that's the last place we go? Beloved, we need to have an involved Jesus in our lives, not an uninvolved Jesus. Are we turning to him? Are we seeking and pursuing him when the wine runs out, not when we're bone chip dry? Mary involves Jesus. She is following him. She's a disciple, watching, listening, learning from Jesus. And she gives us discipleship 101. The answer to every question when the wine runs out is what Mary says right here. Do whatever he tells you. There it is. Do whatever he tells you. So the question is, what does Jesus call us to do? What do we get from John? From what happens here, what does Jesus call us to do? We are called by Jesus to pour ourselves out, to let ourselves be poured out. That's what we see here as Jesus turns water into wine. Again, to tie all this together, where we've been, why I recap to this, prior to Christ, we celebrated this with Luciano today, prior to Christ, we are dead. We are empty. We are dead. Apart from God, we are empty and we are dead. But God calls us into the water, into baptism. God calls us into the water, and we are given water by God in our emptiness, in our dryness. We are given life at baptism. We understand our true identity. We're made clean. All that stuff that's not us, God takes off of us. That's covenant. We are given water when we are empty. But here's the connection. God gives us water through baptism, but then he looks for us to allow the water of our lives that he's given us to be poured out by Jesus, to be poured out for Jesus. He wants our lives to go from water to wine. He wants our lives to become wine. And not just any wine. He wants our lives to become the new wine, the best wine, the wine that doesn't run out. God wants, you want a picture of what God wants our lives to look like? God wants our lives to become the wine that's the vintage of the kingdom. Aromatic, aromatic lives, rich lives, potent lives, celebratory lives. Baptism leads to communion. Covenant leads to kingdom. Identity, knowing your family, leads to your authority and power for the kingdom. I can't keep saying this. I hope you're getting this. It's both. One of the things about grace that we celebrate here, and rightly so, one of the things I remember when I came as a pastor, and we just had a new member class, is people will say one of the things that they just appreciate about grace is that grace is a loving family. And I want to affirm that. We are a loving family. We are a loving family here. This is a very loving community. And that's an awesome, important, beautiful thing. And I'm not beating you up. But that's only half the gospel. That's only half the gospel and beloved, half of the gospel isn't enough. As blunt as I can be, if it's not the full gospel, it's not the gospel. It's great that we love each other. It's great that we're loving. But the reality is, we're not just supposed to be having pool parties. Celebrating our baptism. Man, we're such a great family. We love each other. That's awesome. Yes, that's important. But we are supposed to be having just as many wine tasting parties as we are pool parties. Jesus has left the water. 
Jesus is at the table and he's breaking the bread and filling the cup. Beloved, being the church, being grace, is not only loving each other, but out of that love that God has for us and that we have for each other, being the wine, exercising the authority and power of the kingdom. I want as much as we feel the love in this room, I want us to start sharing more and having more to share about the transformation that we're seeing in each other's lives. Talking about the wine that's being poured out. I want us to point to the community that surrounds us and see how God's at work through us in the community that surrounds us because that's the gospel. That's why we're here. Every time that good wine is poured out, our lives are changed and transformed. Hear that. Every time that the good wine of Jesus is poured out, our lives are changed and transformed. You write a sermon like this, you always have to anticipate the engineers in the room. Who they hear the story of water changing to wine and they're trying to do proofs. And the number one question is, how does that happen? How does water get changed to wine? And not, we're just talking, and not just physical water changed to wine, but we're talking now spiritually. How does the water of our lives get changed to wine? I can't tell you how it happens. I don't know how it happens. All I know is that it does happen. We see that miracle every day. Not just as a pastor, but as a pilgrim of the faith, I have tasted the good wine. I have seen the miracle of Canaan in my life, and I have seen it in the lives of others. I have experienced moments where death has been turned into life, moments where sorrow has been turned into joy, where despair has become hope. I have seen it happen in the lives of others, where fear, crippling fear, was transformed into courage, where the sour taste of bitterness, rancor, ugly bitterness, became the sweet taste of forgiveness. And people did things they never thought was possible. I have seen, I have watched empty lives be filled back up. Broken marriages that became vibrant. Divided families and friendships that reconciled and became fruitful again. Forsaken communities and neighborhoods that were redeemed and became life-giving. Water into wine. Unbelief into faith, indifference into love, death unto life. I have tasted the good wine. Have you? I have tasted the good wine. Have you? We gather here today because we've run out of wine. And running out of wine may seem like a tragedy, an embarrassment, at the least a party foul. But maybe it's the best thing that can happen to us. Maybe it's the best thing that can happen to us because if running out of wine leads us to Christ, it allows Jesus to get back involved back in our lives. Do whatever he tells you. What are we called to do? We're called to let our lives be poured out. And specifically, what are we called to do? Our kingdom responsibility? Jesus tells us in him, through him, to be a witness. Hear those words. Be a witness. Be a witness. You don't have to save anybody. You don't have to defend the gospel. You don't have to be the life of the party. Be a witness, Jesus says. Be poured out by me to be a witness. And what does that mean? What are the three things that it means to let the wine flow in our lives? Jesus tells us to pray. Pray, not by your own strength, but through Christ who's at work in you. Even when you don't know how to pray, let the spirit just flow. And if you've never prayed like that, you're missing something. Jesus tells us to pray. Jesus tells us to love, love. The very thing that we want, the very thing that we want to experience and we want to share, and yet we put all this other stuff in front of it, and Jesus says, love, not in your own strength, in your own power, but let my spirit, my wine flow and love on each other. Pray, love, and the other thing that Jesus calls us to do is to serve. Serve. You have been given 
You will be receiving more because the wine doesn't run out. So give, serve, joyfully, without, not out of your own resources. The, the most exciting and, and fulfilling thing you can do as a Christian, and so many Christians I come across have not done this, is to give something away. I haven't done a stewardship sermon yet. Who knows if I will? But my, here's what I would say to you in terms of stewardship. You hear stewardship sermons and it's always like, okay, look at what you have and give the best of what you can give. That's not biblical. The biblical answer to stewardship is give it away. Give as much away as you possibly can. Give as much away as you possibly can. Don't even think about it. Give it away because that's where the freedom comes. That's where the blessing comes. It's when you start thinking about it. It's when you start doing budgets and worksheets and what's the best I can give. It owns you. The, the wine never runs out. And there's a reason for that. So we can just give it away. Just keep it flowing. Jesus tells us to pray, to love, and to serve. Jesus tells us to take care of each other to forgive each other, to nurture each other, to sustain each other, to be kind and considerate of one another, to stand with those whom the world and maybe even the larger Christian community so-called excludes. That's love, that's service, that's prayer. Jesus calls us to be a little more humble, a little more honest, to realize as we share our faith with those who aren't there yet that we're more interconnected and more interdependent with those people than we realize. Jesus tells us to be witnesses. And we are witnesses to the kingdom. We are witnesses of the wine, not by the force of an argument. Not by manipulating or throwing a great party. By being loving, prayerful, generous people. Especially to those who don't like us. So maybe you're here this morning feeling a little dry, a little empty. Fear not. Maybe you're here this morning and you're feeling, I won't say beat up, but a little pressed, a little squeezed. That's how wine gets made. And if it's Jesus doing the squeezing and if it's Jesus doing the pressing, it may be uncomfortable, but that's not a bad thing. Because regardless of how we think about it or what we feel about it, the day the wine runs out is the beginning of a miracle. That's what John wants us to see. The day the wine runs out is the beginning of a miracle because in Christ we are being transformed. Jesus wants us to see and understand we are the wine. We are the wine. Later on he'll say it to his disciples this way, abide in me, abide in me. Apart from me you can do nothing. Abide in me and bear much fruit. Bear much fruit. We are, beloved, the fruit of the vine. We are the wine that Jesus has for the world. So I invite you on this St. Patrick's Day to raise your glass. Raise your glass even if, and especially if, it's empty. And let us look to the one who's the true vintner, the true steward, the chief steward of our lives. And let us be open as he fills us up with his transforming power, as he makes us this new wine that will fill and transform this empty and dry world for the kingdom. I don't know about you, but I'll drink to that. Amen. <laughs>